0: the story is told of Amy and Jamie not only were they longtime friends they also have been married to their respective spouses for over forty years and uh, Amy in their conversation together was venting her frustration that her husband didn't find her attractive anymore In fact she said as I've gotten older he doesn't even look at me yet alone give me compliments Jamie on the other hand said well gosh you know it's been the strangest thing Because the older I've gotten, the more attractive I've become to my husband. In fact, just last night, he told me, I've never been more beautiful. To which Amy replied, yeah, but your husband is an antique dealer. (laughs) You know, sometimes... We get ourselves in trouble, you know, it's like, you know, now that she brought it up, she gave her something to think about. But, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it's easy to say the wrong thing, you know, to stick one foot in our mouth and mumble something foolish. And if you're the kind of person who uh, has maybe a bad habit of speaking before you think or acting impulsively with little concern for your safety or that of others, You know, if your passion for the Lord leads to him having to reprove you, uh, then you can relate to the apostle Peter. Uh, You know, the gospels are filled with this man's words and his deeds. You know, and many of them are quite remarkable if you think about it as we've gone through Luke's gospel, just in Luke's gospel itself, we found that there was a point in time where there was this miraculous catch of fish and uh, Peter is a fisherman and the rest of his buddies had been fishing, you know, all night and they hadn't caught a thing. You know, and Jesus gave him some instructions, and the next thing you know, they had this miraculous catch of fish. And when Peter saw this, he said to Jesus, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. He recognized what we all need to recognize, and that is compared to God, all of us fall short of his standard of perfection. He knew that he was in the presence of deity. He knew that he was in the presence of God himself. And he said, Lord, you know, get, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. You know, in answer to Christ's question as to who he was, Jesus, Peter gave the, the greatest answer of all time, the most accurate and truthful answer. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, if you recall, Jesus had said, you know, who do people say that I am? And, you know, and they went through a litany of, you know, you're a good guy, you're a good teacher, you're, you know, a prophet, you're John the Baptist, you know, you're all these things. And he asked Peter, said, but you know what, but, you know, who do you say that I am? And it becomes a very personal question. And it's a question that each one of us personally have to answer because it really doesn't matter who Someone else says Jesus is. It doesn't matter who the person sitting you next to you says, you know, who Jesus is. It really comes down to who do you say that he is? You know, and, and it earned, you know, a, a tremendous praise on the part of Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, as we go through his life on that stormy night on Tiberias, Peter looked out and said, Lord, if that's you, then tell me to come to you into the water. And he walked out to him, only to recognize the fact that he was now walking on water and said, as he began to sink, Lord, save me. Kind of my bad. What was I thinking that I could walk on water? But, uh, you know, he, he gave it a shot. You know, when others abandoned Jesus in large numbers because they had come to the realization that Jesus did not come to be a physical meal ticket, He had fed the multitudes, but he had done so to prove to them that he was who he claimed to be, the savior of the world, God in human flesh. And they followed him everywhere because he did for them what they wanted. You know, and a lot of people today look for that type of savior, give me a better job and, you know, give me a, you know, a happy life and give me a healthy life. And, you know, as long as you give to me what it is that I want, then we're going to be on good terms. And when Jesus made it very clear to the multitudes that I haven't come to be your meal ticket, physical meal ticket. I've come to die for your sins, to be your spiritual meal ticket, to make you right with God. If you would just believe and trust in me, those who were in it for the physical said, not interested anymore. If I don't have to get up and go to work tomorrow and I can count on you to feed me and, you know, and support me and, you know, all those things, then, then I'm, I'm there. You know, I'm right behind you. But if you're going to tell me that, you know, life is still going to be difficult for me in the physical, material world, I'm not interested. See, and people are looking for the same kind of gospel, good news, that they think is good news today. You know, give me a good life and then I'll worry about this thing you call sin then I worry about death and I worry about heaven and hell and judgment and all that kind of stuff. But just give me what I want now. And so as they turned and they left and they walked away, Jesus looked at Peter and said, You know, are you going to go with him? And he's like, Lord, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go, there's no one else to whom to turn. And so when I look at Peter's life, you know, he's a man who is 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 really remarkable in a lot of ways. But one of the most fascinating things to me about the Bible and, and one of the greatest arguments for the truthfulness of the Bible is that God paints a picture of God's heroes, warts and all. You know, if if we were to write a book about our friends and we wanted to make them look good, we would leave out all the things that would make them look bad. But God says, no, this is is it. Warts and all, I'm going to show you their highlights and I'm going to show you their lowlights. I'm going to show you their their moments of great victory and I'm going to show you moments of their failure. And you know what? You're going to learn something from every aspect of their life. And so, you know, to me, Peter's one of the guys that, you know, that, that I, I, I saw for many years in NFL locker rooms. He was one of those guys that was a big, strong, tough guy. That if there was ever a guy who would put his confidence in himself, it was Peter. Strong, tough, uh, courageous, you know, don't get in my face. And yet at the same time, we realized that, you know, he, he wasn't always about courage and success. You know, we see this account that we'll look at today about him, you know, kind of slipping below the water again. You know, Peter's sheer humanity makes him everyone's teacher. Clarence McCarty put it this way. He says, his impulsive deeds, his frequent questions, his eager exclamation and confessions the praise and honor and rebukes that were bestowed upon him, his sometimes manly and sometimes cowardly acts, his promises, his bitter tears, all this makes Peter the great companion and the great instructor of his fellow man and his fellow Christian. The night of his failure is perhaps the most instructive night of his life. And if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, where in verses 54 through 71, the Holy Spirit has for our instruction, our rebuke, our correction, and our training two events which we find overlapping. One I'll call Peter's plunge, and the other is Christ's claim. In Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 54, we read these words. And having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. And about an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and blindfolding him. They were asking him, saying, prophesy who is the one who is hitting you. And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. You know, in this passage, we will learn that Jesus clearly claims to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, God's long promised Savior and Redeemer of the world. And this claim by Jesus either makes him the Lord he claims to be or the vilest form of liar that ever walked the face of the earth. As C.S. Lewis said, God never gave us an opportunity to pick one or the other. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, but he's one or the other. You cannot say that Jesus is a good person or a good man if what he said about himself isn't true. And if what he says about himself is true, then you are left to have to answer the question, then he is, is he Lord in your life, because he is Lord to all. And see, as, as he was being, you know, interrogated, so to speak, as we go through this, you know, Jesus claimed to be the very Savior of the world. You know, everything that we as Christians believe rests upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, if somebody would go to, you know, anybody and say, what is it that you believe? You know, Would you be able to answer them? Do you really understand what it is that you claim to believe? Everything that we as Christians believe rests upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That rests upon his own claim to be the very son of God, the son of man, the savior, the redeemer of the world that rests upon the fact that he came and was born, you know, he, he was born unto a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, meaning when he said, this is my body which is broken for you, this is my blood which will be shed on your behalf, that he died a substitutionary death, and then he was raised again from the dead three days later. And as we'll see, he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God where all authority has been given to him. Everything that we believe is based on the claim that Jesus makes that he is the very savior of the world. See, in this passage, we see the impact of his claim in three different ways. First, we're going to look at the impact that we see where he was denied by one who had responded positively to his claim. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. As I've already mentioned in my overview of Peter's life, there's no question that Peter had come to accept that Jesus is indeed God's savior. He said, you are the Christ, you know, the son of the living God. And Jesus, if, you know, if you stop and think about it, if Jesus had been just another moral teacher, a rabbi, a good guy, a prophet, whatever you want to call him, he never would have permitted his disciples to exalt him as Lord. Could you imagine someone today that that was a religious leader who would allow his disciples to run around and tell people that the one that we're following is, is Lord, my Lord and my God? And if it wasn't true, just just how vile that would be, think about it. Jesus said there is no other way to get to the Father but through him. And if what he was saying isn't true, then he's misled everybody that's trying to seek God and find out what it is that, that, you know, what's God's plan for man. If Jesus isn't truthful in saying that there is no other way but through me, then he's misled everybody that trusts in him. But see, the reality of it is, is that he didn't correct him. If there was ever a moment in time where he had an opportunity to set the record straight, it's when he asked the question, who do people say that I am? He gave the answers that we hear today. He said, but who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if it wasn't true, he would have said, no, 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 that's not right. Don't go around saying that. What are you, crazy? They'll put me to death for that. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he was saying in our vernacular is, right on. You got it right. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of man. I am the Savior. I am the Redeemer. I am the only way to the Father. I'm it. I'm it. Everything God has chosen to do is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm it. And that's why we preach Christ and him crucified. There is no other way to get right with God but through Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and our personal acceptance of that on our behalf. You're right on. And he said, you know what? And you know how you've come to know that? Because God revealed that to you. None of us would ever come to know who Jesus is if God does not reveal him to us. That's why salvation is all of God and none of us. By grace, we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. God has stripped and eliminated any of us ever being able to say that, you know what, well, salvation is, you know, 10% me and 90% God or 50% me and 50% God or 70% me and 30% God. No, salvation is 100% God. It is his gift that he extends to us. It is our choice as to whether we accept his gift or not, period. See, as we look at this, And I see that this plunge that Peter took, his denial of Jesus' claim that's recorded here, I believe that it teaches that even genuine believers, those folks born again by the Spirit of God, having repented of their sin and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ can, if we're not watching and praying, fall to the temptation of even denying knowing Jesus. Why did God record this for us? It is a warning for every one of us that if we're not careful, if we're not watching, if we're not praying, if we don't recognize this great danger that even God's people can deny even knowing Jesus, see the passage clearly teaches the danger of self confidence instead of godly dependence. You know if you recall it was in the upper room if you got the, your Bible right in front of you it wasn 't very long before this that it was in the upper room that in verse thirty three you know Jesus had warned him Simon in verse thirty one Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I pray for you that your faith may not fail and that you, when, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, this is Peter speaking, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the, the cock will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you even know me. I mean stop and think about this. Peter say, Man, you know what? I'm 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 there for you. I'll die with you. I will never deny knowing you. I'm right there in your corner. And I'm sure that he had a lot of confidence in his ability. I mean, you know, and, and as he was saying these things, I, can't, I can imagine angels kind of sitting around when Peter said, not me, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'm right there for you. I'll go and I'll die with you. And, uh, you know, I can just imagine the angels sitting around going, oh, man, he did it again. He, he opened his mouth and all he did this time was he took out his one foot and he put the other one in. Why? Because the word of God so clearly warns us that, you know what, pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit goes before destruction. If there's one thing that'll destroy our lives quicker than anything else, that is that self-dependence, self-confidence, that prideful, you know, and, and a lot of times, you know, it's, it's just that prideful presumption that somehow will never fail. And think about it, and if you really love the Lord, it even makes it worse. Because how could you ever fail somebody that you love that much? It's like the guy who says, man, you know what? I love my wife and I could never fail her in our relationship. I love my children and I could never fail them in my relationship. I'll always be there for you. You know, I'm a friend to the end. You know, I'll stick behind you. I've always been there for you. I'll always be there for you. Doesn't matter what it would ever happen. And you know what? Pride comes before the fall. I hear that so many times when I when I'm sitting around and we're trying to put together the pieces of a broken life. And it's like I can't believe I failed her. I can't believe I failed him. I can't believe I failed my children. I can't believe I failed my my family. I can't believe I failed. And it's like, how did that happen? You know, I, I see this often in the world of athletics. People that are gifted physically and very talented, you know, and I see them often having very short careers because they were never open and teachable. They had this God-given ability and they thought that they knew everything and there was nothing left to learn and they didn't want to listen to anybody else. And, you know, and this this career that should have been, you know, it should have been 10 years or 15 seasons was three seasons and, you know, three and out. And you go, how did that happen? It's because that arrogance and that, that cockiness and, and that pride, you know, destroyed them. You know, what do you know? What can you tell me? And the guys who are around a long time are people that are like, you know what, I'm always learning, I'm always growing. I realize that, you know what, I I need all the help that I can get. Some of the greatest athletes that I'll ever know are guys who never stopped learning. Not only did they keep learning, but they were teaching others around them. See, in this passage there are several things which stood out to me as they relate to compromise first of all, you know, Peter was in dangerous company. I want you to go back and look at that passage from verses 54 through 62. We won't go through all of it again, but I want you to look at the fact that, you know, after they arrested Jesus, they led him away. They brought him to the house of the high priest. They actually took him to the house of Annas, who was no longer the high priest, uh, but he was the recognized high priest. But Rome didn't recognize him. They appointed appointed Caiaphas. And so, you know, it was just this, the whole trial of Jesus is something that we'll go through next time we're together. And it's just, it was just a joke uh, what they did and how they did it. And we'll see that in detail. <clears throat> but but anyway, what happened was those who couldn't get into uh, into Annas' house uh, with Jesus, they sat outside. And it was cold out. And they were in the courtyard. And they made a fire. And one of the first things that stood out as I read through this was that, and then we're told that Peter, who was following at a distance, After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down together, Peter sitting among them. I mean, one of the first things that stood out to me was what is Peter doing sitting with the enemies of Jesus? All right, it was cold and he's sitting around the fire, but talk about putting yourself in a position to fail. He's hanging out with the wrong people. You know, how many times have you heard people say this? You know what, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, you know what, and, and let me just add one more thing, and you were with what? The wrong people. There's a principle that God tells if we would believe him and trust him, it would change most of our lives, and that is this. Don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Peter's hanging out in the fire, keeping his hands warm with a whole bunch of people that hate Jesus. What good is going to come out of this? And he's sitting among the enemies of Jesus. And I think about how many times people get into trouble because they don't believe what God has to say, and here they are, they're with people who don't live according to the standards that God has laid out. I want you to take note of the erosion that takes place you know, in, in Peter's courage from being a courageous man. First of all, he denies knowing Jesus. Servant girl, seeing him as a fire lit, said, hey, this man was with him. He says, I don't know him. So first he says, I don't know Jesus. Don't know him at all. You know what? And all sin is first and foremost against God. It violates the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Hey, do you know them or not? I don't know them. We've all been environments. We've all been in places where you know you're kind of caught off guard with that. It's kind of like, hey, what do you think of these Jesus freak people? (laughs) Well, I don't know. What do you mean? We, had, we have a good friend who was visiting from Atlanta, and she does some work up in the Hollywood area and takes some pictures and things like that. And she said it was the most bizarre thing she'd ever experienced. They were all sitting around this table, this dining table, with people that were just, you know, well-known Hollywood heavyweights, for lack of a better way to put it. And it was, and she was there at the time when the Passion of the Christ was out. And as they were sitting around. Talk about sitting around the fire. They're sitting around the table, and the one guy goes, Oh, and Sandy, what do you, what do you think of this movie, The Passion of the Christ? And she said, and all of a sudden, and, she, and you know, here this galish. she loves the Lord, she's a believer, and she's sitting in the middle of a bunch of people who had just for the last 30 to 45 minutes talked about how stupid the movie is and how it doesn't make any sense to them that any person would die for the sins of others and what does that mean? And they looked at her and they said, what do you think of this? And she was like, it's like, it's like if somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Well, Well, let me tell you. And she said it was the first time that she was ever caught off guard because of the environment that she was in. And she said, you know, she did the best that she could, but she was beating herself up at our house afterwards you know of how many things she should have said and what she should have did, and she was driving all the way down the 405 freeway, one going, "Oh, I missed that," and "Oh, I should have said that," and, you know what? And I gotta go. Oh, and then she was like, you know, and then she got to the house. She goes, we need to send them some CDs. <laughs> <laughs> Which was fine, but it was like, man, you know, it's like, you know, he denied knowing Jesus, and then the next thing. They said, hey, a little later, another said, you are one of them too. You're one of his followers. And he said, man, I am not. He denied knowing his friends. He was the leader. They looked up to him. First, he denied knowing Jesus at all. And then the easy part was denying knowing his friends. You know, because, I mean, once you deny Jesus, you can deny anybody and everybody after that. This is probably... Uh, one of the clearest explanations and gives me an understanding of how a man can walk from his wife and his children who he never wanted to fail, who he never wanted to fail his family and can walk away from them and just go a whole new direction in life. And the whole reason for it is this. If we can deny our God, we can deny anybody. And it all starts there, because our greatest accountability is to God. And if I can blow off God, then I can blow off my wife, I can blow off my children, I can blow off my business partner, I can blow off, you know what, anybody and everybody, and that's why a pastor can walk from his church. Because if he can deny his God, he can deny everybody. And this is the digression, the erosion of this confidence. And third, just so that there's no misunderstanding about every, anything here, she said, well, certainly this man is a Galilean too. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And that was kind of like, I'm just going to deny everything. I deny knowing Jesus. I deny knowing my friends. I just deny everything. See, God's word consistently warns of this, erosive, this, this corrosive and erosion pattern. If you look just at Psalm 1, a very simple but powerful psalm as to this terrible compromise that takes place in the life of the believer. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You think there was some scoffing going around the fireplace? He says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. You know, the good news, going back to Luke chapter 22, is that, You know, for Peter and for all God's people is that Peter's plunge into this dark world of denial does not end there. It's also a beautiful picture of God's redemptive work. A wonderful thing happens to Peter that night. Simon, the uh, natural man with his self-assured presumption, was crushed once and for all. See, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise. That God will do whatever he has to do to crush you and I so that we will no longer have any self-dependence but that we will be so desperate that we depend fully upon God. See, is God doing that work in your life? I, I know he's doing that work in my life. You know what? And that's a good work that he's doing. Because when we look at this, it's through such brokenness that God does his greatest work in our lives. There's three things that stood out. And I, I put all the accounts together and they relate to how God heals the brokenhearted. Number one, I want to call your attention to the look. I can't even imagine where we're told in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, how that just crushed him. That just crushed him. Have you ever let somebody down and just had them look at you? Our youngest daughter, when she would do something that, you know, wasn't something that we were fond of, when she was younger, all I had to do was just give her the look, You know, you know, that look, it's like this. You don't have to say anything. And she would just start, she would just burst into tears. And then she would go like this. You, 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 you hurt my heart. And I'd go... You, you, you hurt our heart, too. And it was just a look. You know, and it just just devastates you. I mean, can you imagine what Peter lived with when he heard that rooster crow and he, and he saw Jesus just look at him? And the look was like, see, I told you. I told you. But the other side of it was, but I'm still looking at you. See, God doesn't turn his eyes from us. The worst of all would be no look. The worst of all would be a person who fails, and that person that has been failed just goes like this. You know, as they used to joke about, you know, in the Italian mafia, you know, you're dead to me. I don't even want to look at you. See, but God looks at us. And when we're faithless, he's faithful. And so there was that look. And I want you to also understand something very important. Jesus looking at Peter would have meant nothing if Peter wasn't looking at Jesus, he would have never seen the look. But one thing you got to give Peter credit for, amidst all of his failures, was this. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. So when he got the look from Jesus, there was more to the look than just, you disappointed me. I told you this would happen. But his look was, it's going to be okay too. Because you know why? I still love you. I'm not done with you. He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not done with you. So if you'll just look at me, you keep your eyes on me, it's gonna be all right. See, he had him look, but he also wanted him to remember the word of God, which is where we must also turn What had Jesus told Peter? Hey look, Satan wants to sift you. Satan wants to destroy you. But that's okay because I've prayed for you and when you failed and you've turned around, I want you to get up because you're gonna strengthen the brethren. So him still looking at him was to say, remember everything. Don't just dwell on your failure. But also, remember what I said about your failure, it would just be a temporary glitch on the radar screen of your life. And that, you know what, if you will fix your eyes on me, if you will forget what lies behind, and if you'll press on to what lies ahead, I've got work for you to do. See. And that's the same thing with God's people today. The point is, don't yet yesterday's failures keep you from fulfilling God's destiny for your life today. The reality of it is, is that you and I have been, God has prepared work for us to do before the foundation of the world. One of the strategies or schemes of the enemy is to have us believe that we're disqualified because we failed somewhere along the line. And this this account of Peter's life is to remind us that, you know what, he failed, but it's okay because God picked him up, he was broken, he was repentant, which is important because you know what, as we fail, if we don't recognize we failed and if we're not broken for what we've done, then God can't use us yet but he wept bitterly, he was broken for what he did, and Jesus said, it's okay, remember my word, and also remember my prayer, but I have prayed for you. He is our great advocate. So I was laying in bed this week, and you know, to be open and transparent with you, I I felt worse this last three or four days than I did in all my surgeries combined. And, And I just felt miserable. And you know, you get to that point where you just feel so bad that you kind of go, death sounds really good. Except for your wife, she keeps going like this. You know, as we're laying in bed, i just say, oh, I'd be laying there and I'd feel this. <laughs> it was like, what are you doing? Well, I just wanna make sure you're okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, thanks for checking in. Um, but it, it's, and, and I and I'm laying there and I realized, that, oh, you know what's so wonderful? Is that I know that Jesus is praying for me. I know you're praying for me, which is a wonderful thing. But how much more wonderful it is to know for you and I who have trusted in Christ, he is our great intercessor. He's our great advocate. That he goes constantly before the throne of God and prays for you and I. Last night, I had 102.5 temperature. I came, I came like that close to throwing in the towel. But I want, I, want, I want you to understand something that I've understood for a long time in my own life, and some of you may disagree with this, but one thing that I've learned in being around ath- athletics all my life, playing some sports, is that th- the moment you quit the easier it becomes to quit every time afterwards and that's i don't know i mean i can't find it in the bible anywhere but <laughs> it sounds like a good proverb <laughs> <laughs> but but the moment you quit you'll find that it's easier to quit every other time when i was running marathons i noticed that you know if i quit i'm done and you never quit running you might be running slower but you don't quit in every area of life, and you've seen that, people who quit in a marriage, it's easy to quit in the next one. People who quit on their children, it's easy to quit on them the next time. See, you know what, and people who quit on their God, it's easy to quit on them again. And you know, and and you agree or disagree, I'm just sharing from my heart that I've just come to the point where, you know what, as long as God gives me strength, I'm not gonna quit because I know the next time will be so much easier. And so, you know, as I learned from Peter's life, you know, what a wonderful savior that we have, that he would be praying for us. And remember, but I have prayed for you. And if God's, you know, if God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's all about God's power. I mean, the fact that, you know, what's a you know, what's 102 or 103 fever to God? I mean, I've read the book. He healed people of fevers all the time. It's no big deal. I mean, like I've always said, cancer is no big deal to God. I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to what is God's will for each one of our lives and to be content, you know, with whatever it is. But in the meantime, it's kind of like, I have come to the conclusion that until I die, I will live. (laughs) All right. We're moving on. We also see that he was mocked by those who rejected his claim. Verses 63 and 65, we see that they blindfold him, they beat him, they mocked him. Hey, if you're really God, then show. tell us who's hitting you. You know, we're going to take a look at these in greater detail when we look at uh, the trial of Jesus. But also, in conclusion, look at verses 66 through 71. And when it was day, the council of the elders and the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led them away to their council chamber, which was really interesting. You know, they violated all their own rules. They had an illegal trial. You know, there were supposed to be no trials at night. The law didn't allow for two high priests, as I've mentioned, they did that anyway. They were never allowed to pronounce a verdict without one full day between two trials so that it was, you know, not an emotional thing, that there was facts, there was reason, there was evidence. You know, they weren't allowed to torture, beat or touch a prisoner without due process of law, and we see them violating that at this particular time. So they broke their own, you know, all the rules were broken by this. And it says that, and their request was, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. Well, through our study in Luke, we've already seen that. So you tell me, the baptism of John, is it from God, you know, or or it's like, oh, any question that Jesus asked them, they never answered them. And when he did, they did ask him a question, they weren't interested in what he had to say. So he just kind of went, look, you know what? You're not interested in the truth. And that's basically, he just laid it out. And as we go through this, we'll notice that, you know, they never had a desire to examine the facts, weigh the evidence. If they had, they'd have already decided because they'd already decided he wasn't the Christ. Even though each successive action fulfilled what God's word said would happen to the Christ. He was betrayed by one of his own for 30 pieces of silver. There was the scattering of the disciples in the garden. Here he was being mocked and beaten according to Isaiah 53 and also Isaiah chapter 50. I mean, all of these things, if they were looking for evidence, it's like the word of God was shouting, hey, everything you're doing to Jesus is exactly what the Bible said you would do to the Christ or the Savior when he came. If you're looking for evidence or facts, it's right there before you. So notice the foolishness of their request in verses 67 and 68. So, you know, tell me. If you're the Christ, tell us. It's like, you know, you don't want to know. But look at his answer, his response. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And he was saying, Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 was a vision of the one who was like the son of man they knew it was a messianic prophecy and jesus said from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of god saying from now on after all this is over i will ascend to the right hand of the father that's why they went nuts in the book of acts when stephen said he looked up and saw jesus at the right hand of the of the father because at the right hand was all the authority and all the majesty and all the glory. He was giving them the answer from Scripture, but then just to make sure that there was no misunderstanding this, if they had been Scripture savvy, they would have known exactly what he said, and their reasoning was, well, wait a minute. And they all said, are you the son of God then? If you're claiming to be the son of man, are you the son of God then? And Jesus said, yes, I am. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? Yes, I am. And the result of the claim? Did they fall on their knees? Did they seek his forgiveness for everything they had done to him up to that point? Did they submit themselves to him? Look what he says. And they said, what further need do we have of any more testimony? We've heard it with our own mouths. What they were saying was, good, we finally got them. Now we can get rid of them. Submission? No way. Their hearts had already been made up. In closing, what do we learn from Peter's plunge, Christ claimed to be God? First and foremost, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, for your sins? Not, oh, I believe Jesus is God. I believe He died on the cross. I believe He rose from the dead. You know, I, I, that, that's all I'm saying. Who do you say that He is? You know what? And, and not only that, when did you come to that conclusion? See, everyone in Scripture had a defining moment in their life as to their relationship with God. There's a point where we're broken for our sin. We realize we're sinners. There's a point where we recognize that, you know what? Without God's help, we're on our way to hell. There's a point where we realize that, you know what? Unless I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again from the dead, then I'll be lost for all of eternity. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, when was that moment in your life? See, to Martha, she said to Jesus, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When? When have you There's got to be that moment. There's got to be that time. There's got to be that brokenness that said, you know what, God, forgive me. I believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. I believe that he died for my sins and he rose again from the dead. And I want to receive him as my savior here and now. There's got to be that moment in every person's life. See, not just the knowledge of who he is, but I believe he died for my lies. I believe he died for my sexual immorality. I believe that he died for my drunkenness, my drug abuse. I believe that he died for my greediness, my covetousness I believe that he died for my idolatry I believe that he died for my hard heart and resentment and bitterness I believe he died for those sins in my life I believe he died for my self-promoted goodness that I'm a good person compared to other people I know. But you know what? Compared to God, we all stink. See, Jesus makes it clear. It's him or it's hell. It's our choice. See, and once we're born again, God excels at perfecting his saints. Delivering us from self-sufficiency is a major function of the ups and downs of this life. You know, Paul went to God three different times to have an affliction removed and he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul then commented and said, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Peter has purposely been portrayed by the Spirit of God as a very human man to whom every one of us can relate. He is a type of those who have come to Christ in loving submission, but with the passing of time have succumbed to independence and self-reliance. Oh, look at me now. See, Peter is every one of us. And his experience is our experience. And it's written large on the pages of Scripture so that we won't miss it. Men and women, I'm excited to tell us that he who began a good work in us the day that we were broken and humbled before God and trusted in Christ and were born again by the power of God, that he who began a good work in us that day will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with any of us. Praise God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be together, for your word, for the clarity of it all. We thank you for Peter's plunge and for Christ's claim. And we pray that we would continue to walk humbly with our God, knowing that by the grace of God goes you and I. Lord, thank you for Peter's life, his bold acclamation and proclamation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and for his moment of weakness and failure, because in it we see the story of redemption, that while we are faithless, you continue to be faithful. Lord, we thank you for that look. We thank you for your word. We thank you for that prayer. And we just pray that we will continue to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.